Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 21st, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. A media commentary columnist and AEI fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, I want today to do something uh, surprising, which is I want to thank The Federalist, the website uh, 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 that uh, I don't have much praise for, uh, for the most part, um, now run by Molly Hemingway uh, and uh, having uh, pushed itself uh, uh, very far to the, increasingly far to the right. Um for a piece that the Federalist published yesterday called We Need to Stop Calling Ourselves Conservatives by John Daniel Davidson. Um, The reason I want to thank them is that uh, they are making for themselves the argument that we have been making about people like this who have come to seem to dominate the conversation on the right often and uh, are used by people on the left to say this is what the right really believes and um and uh, this is something that we are fighting against that is our mission to fight against and it is davidson saying uh the conservative project has largely failed conservatives should stop calling themselves conservative they need to consider themselves radicals and um uh and and push for revolutionary or counter-revolutionary change because as davidson says quote conservatives have long defined their politics in terms of what they wish to conserve or preserve individual rights family values religious freedom and so on uh in america conservatives and classical liberals alike rightly believe an ascendant left wants to dismantle our constitutional system and transform america into a woke utopia the task of conservatives has been to stop them in an earlier era this made sense but it no longer makes sense because we've lost everything marriage the first amendment any semblance of control over our borders a fundamental distinction between men and women and the basic rule of law Calling oneself a conservative in today's political climate would be like saying one is a conservative because one wants to preserve the medieval European traditions of arranged marriage and trial by combat. Western civilization is dying. The traditions and practices that conservatives champion are at best being preserved only in an ever-shrinking private sphere. sphere. To talk of family values now is to assume that there are enough Americans able and willing to marry and raise children together for something like family values to matter. So instead, what has to happen is for uh, conservatives to become radicals and look to overthrow, destroy the left, and rebuild uh, in in their own way. Abe, what, what's your what's your take on this? First of all, uh, I'm with you. Uh, I'm glad they did this because I've been saying that they are not remotely conservative in any way, shape, or form, and this is precisely why they so comfortably align themselves with monsters and idiots who are also not uh, conservative in any way, shape or form, but who are uh, also sort of self-styled radicals um, like say Kanye West, Um, fine. But what really gets me about about this sort of manifesto, which he he was clearly going for, 
is that the right-wing radicals have not recaptured any lost cultural ground at all in terms of the country. For all their fist pounding and their endless convening, because they hold they hold a lot of conferences, it's like it's a perpetual CPAC in in, in their world. Um, they've changed only the right, you know, and they've it's like they've locked themselves inside a cage where they have no access to the rest of the country. And in the meantime, the rest of the country is being transformed. The culture is being transformed in a direction that is conservative by non-populist conservatives and non-radical liberals. Who worked to place conservative judges uh, in, in a position so that they could get on the Supreme Court? Uh, uh, the federal society, right? Not, not, not the federalist. Uh, uh, who pushed back successfully against uh, radical school agendas and crime? Liberals and conservatives who were not revolutionary, but who were like, whoa, tap the brakes. This is getting crazy. We're going to vote this stuff out. We're going to we're going to complain to our to our to our school boards. We're going to complain to politicians. They are actually shaping the country in a positive direction. Of course, not instantly. It's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to happen in the slow, measured way that it should. And it is happening while at the very same time, the radical right wingers are just talking to themselves in conference after conference after conference. So they wouldn't recognize those as strategic victories. They're tactical victories. That's it's a battlefield maneuver, which is wholly unequal to the scale of the existential threat we face. Um, <clears throat> one of the I mean, this is first of all, he's lamenting the degree to which they haven't changed the right. Just the very idea of this suggests that they're behind the eight ball when it comes to the fact that people still identify as conservatives and conservatism doesn't mean anything in their in their view. They need to be radicals. They need to break down the system to rebuild it anew and use a lot of martial metaphors, um, the kind of bombast that really intimidates people who live on the internet, but it's just wholly empty. But this, what I find really illuminating in this is that the, the degree to which they kind of view progressivism as this alien force, as though it's sort of outside the Western tradition, it is not. Progressivism is very native to the Western tradition. This is not something that was cooked up in Burma and exported to, to Europe. It's, it, it's endemic um, to the Western tradition. And so this rejection of incrementalism, this rejection of persuasion is legitimized and you know, necessitated by this idea that we are under this invasion, this hostile alien force is taking over. And we don't have to talk about it as though it's something that is nat nat natural and native to the Western experience. It's something that needs to be expurgated violently. Um, that's sort of that's liberating. If you fancy yourself a, a revolutionary, you don't have to view your fellow citizens as people who need to be talked to like human beings who need to be persuaded and um, and their concerns addressed. And maybe the philosophy that you espouse should be um, explored more openly. You don't have to do any of that stuff because these people are are uh, hostages. They've been taken hostage by a, a hostile power and the hostile power needs to be defeated. That's a liberating philosophy, very dangerous philosophy. It's, you know, it's obviously well, it's myopic. Only, it's only a liberating philosophy in the sense that it then says, okay, all they want is power. So all we need to do is seize power. And you seize power by any means necessary. Now, one of the jokes here is, you know, <clears throat> Mazel tov, give it a shot. Go seize power. You know, how, what exactly is it that you're talking about? What, what? <clears throat> what troops, what are you going to marshal? You know, um, that's, that's the, that's the comic aspect of this <clears throat> because this country 
is a divided country. A lot of people are conservatives. A lot of people are liberals. There is no consensus in this country <clears throat> on how to move forward. Elections but provide a means of some consensus, but as we've seen, you can overreach. Democrats obviously wildly overreached in 2021 and 2022 and are about to have their hats handed to them. That's how you correct excesses in but the that's United not, States. That, that's not what they want to do. This is where they actually are um, obviously completely enamored of the tactics of the radical left in the sense that they condescend to the to the masses in the same way that you know the people folks on the left are constantly imputing false consciousness to the to those who don't subscribe to their philosophies and they actually don't really care about the democratic process which is messy involves compromise and persuasion as you all have said they want they want the easy route which is just blow it all up and re rebuild it in their own image and i will i'll take I want to take issue in particular um, in order to argue that, by the way, they have to have a very, uh, very neat history to tell. And they tend to tell it in the way that this piece shows where it's like we lost it, that the conservatives haven't conserved any anything. We have to start from scratch. We have to start anew. Nobody's nobody won any victories here or there. That is absolutely not, not only absolutely wrong in terms of what Abe just described and in terms of recent pushbacks against wokeness, but that's wrong from from a multi-decade perspective. And I'll give you one example. Um, John Esconas, who who is written for Compact, but also written for us at the New Atlantis, whose work I on technology I actually have a lot of admiration for, um, has has said something deeply wrong here. And he's quoted by the guy in the Federalist, but he himself also wrote an, an article in Compact magazine about this, claiming, and this is obviously my hobby horse, saying the real reason conservatives have lost, they didn't take the the threat of technology seriously. They didn't they didn't understand how transformative some of these powers were. And so they've they've lost. They're on the losing side of history here. That's completely false. There have long been people arguing against the corrosive cultural and social effects of some of these technologies, not just our most recent ones, but but bioethical technologies, for example. Those of us who founded the New Atlantis were driven by a desire to see conservative voices argue against some of the kind of um, overly optimistic, um, all technology is good, uh, sort of mainstream views that were capturing the minds of, of those in power. We, we, we have had some victories here and there. And this is a long, the culture war is called a war because it has many, many fronts and, and many skirmishes. And it is something that if you care about preserving and conserving the things that matter, you constantly are a member of that army. And, and I actually don't like the martial metaphors. I think Noah's absolutely right. We should get away from them because what we're trying to do is live in a very diverse society where people have wildly different views and still we need to get along. That's a conservative principle. But they can't, we do they, not have to agree with you, but we do have to all find a way to get along. They can't abandon that because they've also borrowed something else from the progressive left that <clears throat> I find really toxic, which is this apocalypticism. Quote from this piece, the result of uh, you know, te technologies, as Christine just said, technologies and, and changes to the social compact, what have you, the quote, the result has been the transformation of society within the span of a single lifetime, with the, the wholesale destruction of our traditions and the looming implosion of Western civilization. And you open the window and you look around and the birds are chirping and the kids are playing outside and the wholesale destruction of our civilization is nowhere but somewhere to be a found. drag queen lurks. It is no, precise, somewhere a drag queen. No, it's no, precisely the, way, the kind of logic that you have to work yourself up to as a progressive in order to justify tearing everything down and building it anew. Well, look, I mean, there's a the whole thing is a potted history, and this is the problem with the NatCons and the SoCons and all of this is a lot of them are very young, 
And I hate to put it this way because it sounds condescending because I'm 61 years old, but they don't know what the hell they're talking about. For example, he says, the fusionism of past decades in which conservatives made common cause with market-obsessed libertarians and foreign policy neocons is finished. So too is Conservatism Inc. and the establishment GOP had enabled, whose first priority was always tax cuts for big business at the expense of everything else. So John uh, Daniel Davidson, who wrote this piece, is a 2004 graduate of Hillsdale. So he was born, I guess, in 1981 because I graduated in 2004. Okay, so whatever. So um, the establishment GOP was not in support of tax cuts. The original establishment GOP opposed the Reagan tax cuts, hated them. And in 1990, when he was seven or however the hell old he was, John Daniel Davidson, the establishment GOP in the form of the president of the United States agreed to increase taxes in concert with Democrats in order to achieve a balanced budget. That was the establishment GOP. There is no establishment GOP that is a tax-cutting, psychotic tax-cutting machine for big business. First of all, the GOP's interest in tax cuts, classically, it is Democrats who liked tax cuts for individual businesses and things like that because they were able to deliver goods to specific, particularly at the state and local level. Republicans believed in broad-based tax cutting, progressive broad-based tax cutting, and the establishment did not like it because they were green eyeshade budget balancers, not tax cutters, not servants of big business in that way. And when you read stuff like this and then you think, well, this is how he starts from this premise and then creates this, this fictional world in which the conservatives that he doesn't like are all advocating things he doesn't like. Maybe he should read a history book or like watch one documentary or pay the slightest attention. And this is a big thing with the NatCons and the SoCons. They have created a potted history of the last 30 or 40 years that is illiterate. And so in some ways it's disingenuous because some of them really know better and are just propagandizing. And some of them are just stupid and ill-educated and embarrassingly so. Well, it's shot through with- They need to read with... Matt Continenti's book. They should all read Matt Continenti's course, everybody book. everybody should. Uh, <laughs> but it's shot through with contempt for voters. Why would you allow people to have more of their own money when they don't know what the hell they're doing with it? They're destroying civilization with their parochial nonsense and their desire to keep, you know, the status quo and everything needs to be burnt down and rebuilt anew. They need. Why would you support tax cuts for individuals? You know, take their money. We know better than how to use it. We know better how to build the virtuous society than they certainly do. Those idiots. Um. So anyway, as I say, I think the reason that we wanted to highlight this is not sort of yell at some piece in the Federalist that is, you know less than birdcage liner, but to say that uh, it is a vulgar distillation of the ultimate frame of the arguments of people who are trying to take over the conservative movement, which is we want to take over the conservative movement, but we hate conservatism. We don't believe in conserving. We don't believe in restoring. We don't believe in finding a common ground, nor in a fundamental sense do we accept the ultimate rueful wisdom of conservatism, which is that man has fallen and that his organizations, his institutions, and his ways of doing things are all going to be flawed because man is flawed. 
It is not give me the power and I will create virtuous institutions that will promulgate virtue. Man is bad at promulgating virtue. Or organizations and institutions are bad at promulgating virtue. They're not Government good at is bad at it too. And that's what yes. they want. The well, state is right. not. Well, I mean, and they're, the, the, the fact that, you know, this whole thing, his whole argument is premised on the idea that there is nothing to conserve anymore. That's all lost. So what, what we need to do is restore this thing that is that existed in the mists in the mists of the distant past. Well, he that says the pilgrims. The pilgrims that, are his example. Yeah, the that, pilgrims that, as opposed that, to the that, founders. Yeah, that, that yeah that announces that they are in the realm of myth, right? That is that is what they are working on, and that you is, right. by the way, of course, you know the sort of um, substratum for every frightening. A uh, uh, mass political movement that we've seen in the last, I don't know, you know, hundred years. You actually answered my question because I was remembering back in 2016 when the debate was what has conservatism conserved, and the assumption there being that there was some things worth conserving that conservatism just wasn't unequal to the task. Now it doesn't seem like there's anything worth conserving, and that maybe justified that that logic there. But I was confused as to how you thread that needle psychologically. Look, I mean, to use Abe as an example, I'm now going to third person Abe here. So Abe wrote a piece in the summer of 2020 called, Yes, There is a Revolution, right? Yes, this is a revolution. And and it was, it laid out, what was the title? Did I get the title right? Yes, this is a revolution. Yes, this is a revolution. So it laid out everything that had been done, you know, George Floyd onward to kind of re- orient and recreate American society in this unbelievably hurried fashion. And then the next year, Abe had to write another piece called Yes, There is a Counter-Revolution because this mad rush to revolutionary change, as, as, he, as you alluded to in your opening remarks, Abe, was met with force. But it was met with force where you're supposed to meet things with force at a school board meeting in a midterm in, in an election in Virginia, in, um, you know, uh, in resolutions and things that are going on in Congo, all sorts where politics happens. This is the stuff of politics. This is not a revolutionary country. The effort to create a revolution inside it caused the backlash and the and this dismissal of the backlash by by these people because what they want is to control the levers of power to impose their moral framework on everybody else on the grounds that that is what the left is doing uh and that their moral framework is better well you know listen it depends on who you are what would do i think that like all things being equal, the moral framework of sort of a certain type of social conservative uh, and his view of the world would 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 largely be better than, you know, a kind of uh, transnational, transhumanist, horrible revolutionary change. Yes. However, I'm a Jew. I'm part of a tiny minority. I don't want Catholic extremists running the moral frame of the United States. I'm sorry. I'm uh, I'm an admirer of a lot of Catholic thinking. I have many Catholic don't friends. Don't be sorry. Don't don't ha- no. Don't be no, sorry. Okay. That is a completely legitimate and actually healthy view to have in a pluralistic democracy. <laughs> yeah, we. I don't need 
you know, Adrian Vermeule telling me how to live because ultimately when he tells me how to live, he will be no different from people who are trying to change laws in Europe to make it impossible to slaughter animals in a kosher fashion or to circumcise children in, in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in admiration in, as part of the, ulti- the oldest covenant known to, between man and God. I don't need them in there. They have to stay out too. I mean, no, they they can be part of a national framework and conversation and be part of the moral framework of the people who are their people, but not mine, even though we have many areas in common with many things that we agree on, including well, that, traditional that found- yeah. that Yeah, that was the founder's view and understanding that you cannot have, you can have many faiths, but try to have a shared common purpose, which is a moral purpose to it. Actually, you know, there, there's a lot of virtue talk in our founding documents for a reason, but they were not there, there was not a decision about whose moral tradition should supersede everybody else's. And the one thing I am sympathetic in some of these arguments, although they go far far too uh, extreme with them, is this idea that we now have a moral code that supersedes everyone else. And that is an entirely secular, extremely progressive, not, not at all uh, grounded in any faith tradition code. And that is what our society is now governed by. If, you look, if, if you're really concerned about wokeness, that is the concern, legitimate concern. But the idea that the answer to that is to decide that Catholic moral teaching is the only way that we will rebuild society on grounds that will will allow everyone to flourish. I, that is not persuasive. And, and they wrestled with this. They have been wrestling. We've wrestled with this for hundreds of years. This is not a new question. The answer was never complete, you know, uh, elevation of one moral tradition over the other. It was let's come to some common purpose. We are founding this nation, which is you know, pluralistic and and new and and that to go back to the founders would actually help them, I think, temper some of their their revolutionary rage. We should also put in a good word for the market, which is getting a lot of crap here that it doesn't deserve because <laughs> that's just a euphemism for competition. And they can't stand competition. This guy doesn't seem to appreciate competition, which is the process of persuasion, which is the process of winning over skeptic skeptics to your cause, your product, what have you. Um that kind of competition they resent and they they are you know contending here sort of implicitly that the anti-competitive practices of the left are uh, have created a playing field that is so uneven that we can't compete anyway we need to you know adopt their tactics and tilt the playing field back in our favor just you know uh, just being anti-competitive generally um but they would benefit from quite a, quite a lot i would think from competing for hearts and minds here he's he's seeding the field by saying, you know, that we need to impose our vision uh, autocratically rather than have it adopted entropically, have it adopted um, voluntarily. Um, It's kind of, yeah, this kind of entropic human relationships that the market creates uh, are what, as that's the problem. And that's what they're afraid of. I mean, I think we can, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Part of their problem, I think, and there is a sort of selling issue here is that, I'm not sure what their vision is. You see, I'll, I'll give the left credit, the, the radical left credit to this extent. Um, the, the long running radical revolutionary left project begins with an idea of the world as it should be, um, the, the real world as it should be. Now, I think it's a, a dangerous vision of how the world should be. I think it's an unrealizable vision of how the world should be. I don't think it comports with human nature. Um, and and I think many people are in the project 
because they want they don't really care how the world should be but they they want they want to power over other people um i don't see any articulation among the radical right of how the world should be they 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 are they jump right into don't do this don't do that you shouldn't be doing this this is disgusting this is wrong even and and the way the world was before this wasn't too great either um so, well, so i think i, I, I don't know what know. their views go ahead i mean not not all of them but the a lot of the ones we're talking about their vision is rerum navarum their vision is the um is the uh, papal statement of 1896 hostile to capitalism right uh essentially anti anti anti-modernity Social justice. Um, and it's a, it is the prototypical it's social, justice, social justice. It's so it, yeah. It's the it's the birth of social justice, but with this tinge, which is the means by which the modern world is constructing itself to provide prosperity and freedom, are bad and destructive, and they need to be halted. And we need to come together under essentially a kind of papal banner now some of them will be honest about this and say it and there are others who are not catholics who don't really know that that is what is motivating them but if you needed a foundational document that wasn't the that wasn't the declaration of independence it would be rerum navarum but and 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 this idea that adrian vermule openly advocates which is a holy roman emperor that is the ultimate goal of now this is of course this is like medieval philosophy like there's not going to be a holy roman emperor that's so, what i'm saying yeah, yeah it's not i mean that then it, it's it is a purely overtly catholic vision it has right. nothing it's it is not a it is not yeah. a it's a it's a very different animal altogether yeah. right but i and think you can't again, sell that they, yeah again i selling it smelling whatever they want they can say whatever they want i welcome this document because they are saying that they are no longer conservatives and we have been saying now for years that they are not conservatives and they are now saying that they are not conservatives. And now the world should understand that they are not conservatives. If they're not going to say we are the true conservatives, they're saying, you know what? Conservatism is bad. Radicalism is good. Radical efforts are good. This is what people hate about progressivism. But it doesn't matter. Like we are conservatives because we actually believe in conservatism. They are not conservatives. So fine. So get out of my, you know, get out of my sandbox. Go, go play in your own sandbox, buddy. I mean, like, good. You know, it's like, I don't like your toys. Fine. So you don't get to play with my toys anymore. I mean, it's not that complicated. We've been having this argument over the soul of the American right. But if the people who are having, who are, who are creating the tension in the soul for the American right, and we're not just talking about policy questions about immigration or this or that, but if they say, I'm no longer on the right, I am not a conservative. I do not believe in conservative principles and values. I take them at their word. So he doesn't I would posit suggest what they that they're not themselves. brought in to help write the Republican platform if there is ever a Republican platform again. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm just saying, like, they're not... They're not conservatives. And I, I, I welcome their honesty about it. And I am thrilled that I no longer have to have to have this argument. Anytime anybody says to me, you're not a conservative, I'm going to send them John Daniel Davidson. Believe me, I get plenty of emails about how I'm not a conservative. And I will send them John Daniel Davidson's piece and say, yeah, I'm not this. So he said he's not a con- that's who you are. So you're not a conservative. That so join go with him. 
you know, Jonah, have a nice Jonah meeting. Goldberg has called them pro-life New Dealers, which is kind of a right. mouthful, but it's descriptive. Yes. yes. And of course, uh, that is now Saurabh Amari's handle on Twitter. Saurabh Amari's pro-life New Dealer. Anyway, uh, let me pull back for a second and talk to you about that. Look, we're talking about, you know, sort of like uh fealty to an organization or you know presence in a kind of a, a grouping of people so let's talk about bambi which is about business and how to and how to run a business because when running a business your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations somebody isn't showing up when they're supposed to an employee reports a serious issue like sexual harassment you're not sure if you have a documented policy talk to Bambi. With Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just get this $99 per month available by phone, email, real-time chat. So onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Spelled B-A-M-B-E.com, Bambi.com, and type in Commentary Magazine. Uh, Noah, um, we are now 18 days from the election. And uh, I believe the term that you used was that the precriminations are starting. They have begun. It is precrimination time. Yeah, it's like I precog mean, for elections. I like it. Yes, <laughs> it's an old. Yeah, this is an old old term. It's, I don't think it's actually a word, but it really should be because it's used very frequently every every two years in this country. Um, yes, uh, if you were to, if you were watching Joe Biden's appearance yesterday on the campaign trail with John Fetterman, um, I don't know how you don't panic if you're a democrat these there's two very infirmed candidates who did their best to keep their mouths shut while they're being bombarded by questions from reporters because the two of them can't speak we're talking about the president of the united states and a, a pivotal senate candidate who makes or breaks the democratic majority um everybody's quiet panicking and you hear it from bernie sanders and james carville who are saying well the party focused too much on abortion Already just conceding the game. Barack Obama, we talked about this the other day, told his former staffers, Pod Save America, Democrats are buzzkills because they alienate the median voter by using this lingua franca of the academy and identity politics jargon, and it just doesn't relate to anybody's real life. Um, but the, the one I want to focus on right now is this emerging impulse to blame the voters, those rubes, those idiots, so parochial, so focused on gas prices and grocery prices. What's the um, matter with Kansas? What's the matter what's with the Kansas? What's the matter with Kansas, Noah? This is G. Elliot Morris, who's an economist, the economist data analyst and an author on polling. Quote, it's terrifying how many Americans will choose. Uh, no, I'm sorry, this, this one. There is a lot of voters who are more concerned about the price of groceries than whether our democracy survives. Scoff, scoff, scoff. Joanne Reed, it's terrifying how many Americans will choose literal fascism and female serfdom just to bring down gas prices. And there's a couple of pieces in the Washington Post. The Washington Post headline says, Americans care about democracy, just not enough to save it. New York Times says something very similar. Um, and they, it's true that the democracy issue, which is a proxy for litigating January 6th all day, every day, forever, um, should be a democratic issue. They should own it. 
And it does register in polls. We had this New York Times Siena poll that showed the economy and inflation are everybody's urgent priority. But next up on third place of the bullet is democracy. People do care. But Democrats don't own this issue. They are not prohibitive choices for the de democracy-focused voter. Um, the Times Siena poll is one. Here's another from Pew came out yesterday. 70% of Americans say they care about the future of democracy. And Democrats own that issue, but only by six points. 46% of Americans say Democrats are better on that issue compared to 40% of Republicans. Because when people talk about democracy in elections, as we've talked about before, they mean two very different things. And both par partisans in both camps, who have to be very partisan to care about this issue at all, to be very focused on the news, um, both of them are kind of split down the middle as to what democracy, what the democracy supporting party really truly is. And if you look because at how Democrats so have handled, yeah, if you look at how Democrats been... have handled democracy generally, this makes a lot of sense. Because yes, they're angry at the the MAGA right, but they're funding the MAGA right. They are you know very focused on educational issues, but they don't want you as a parent to have total control over what your kid learns in school. Or if elections control. don't go their way, they're perfectly happy to contest the results and say it was fraudulent. If a Supreme Court decision doesn't go their way, they want to ruin the Supreme Court and run down the institution, eliminate the Electoral College if it, de if it delivers a result they don't like. Their commitment to democracy is skin deep. And to assume that Americans don't notice this is the height of condescension. It's a purely self-serving psychological narrative. And I get it. Happens every two years. But it is so grotesque, um, so self-serving. And, and as parochial or more parochial than the voters they're attacking, um, it's just really unlovely. I think and, I think there's another as there's another sort of misstep that the Democrats have made here, which is that in their campaign for to, to save democracy, I think they've actually made the cause kind of small by focusing 99.9% of their energy on one day, January 6th. Um, and it's a day that is inexorably receding into the past. Um, it's hard to keep the sort of perennial fear going if what you're really talking about day in, day out for all this time is what happened on that one day. I'm, and this is I'm not this is not because I'm I'm minimizing what happened that day. What happened that day was a horror. And I'm, I'm, I'm but that's kind of where their case begins and ends. Um, for, for most Americans. And this becomes this, this starts to seem like a really small thing um, in terms of saving the country. This happened. The Capitol still stands. The, 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 we, we, we still have our House. We still have our Senate. We still have lawmaking. Um, what, what are you saving exactly? I, I want to point out that um, uh, everybody takes there is a kind of conspiracy to belittle the quality and condition of our democracy on left and right, which is, I think, what Noah is saying. For example, <clears throat> if your goal is to get more people to vote, which Democrats have always said is their goal because they believe more people, if you sort of ask more people, they're more inclined toward Democratic than Republican issues, right? And there are, in fact, not notionally, there are more Democrats than Republicans when you do polling. Okay. So they want to make it easier for people to vote. Mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, uh, you know, uh, open you know, early voting, all of that. And guess what? They have. They have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. 
state after state, place after place. The argument that you should make voting easy is something that is very hard to argue against. And Republicans who have argued against it sound petty and small and craven uh, and have lost a lot of their ability to say, no, no, we should all vote on the same day because it's better for democracy, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, so so they've won, but to hear them talk about it, they've lost. They've won this series of victories. Georgia is the single best example, right? Stacey Abrams loses in 2018, although she refuses to admit she loses. Georgia liberalizes its voting so that in the last week or something like that, hundreds of thousands of Georgians have voted early. And she is still talking about threats to democracy. This is actually her success. Like, this is something that she engineered and led the Georgia state legislature and Brian Kemp, the governor, to sign into law. And she is poo-pooing it because it does not serve her current interests. Similarly, they have now shifted. Where you're wrong about the January 6th stuff, I think, is that the, this conversation on, on the left has shifted because now it's about are election deniers going to be voted into office in states where they have some say or leeway or control or whatever of elections if they're secretaries of state and they win places? The election deniers are winning office. Well, you know what? Guess what? Uh, yeah. So um, they're going to win office. Then what? Like, you think they're just going to be able to steal elections? Like, now you're into, now you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a leftist who is buying into Trump paranoia about controlling election machines and controlling poll counters and having people hiding in the back, changing ballots and all of that. That's, that's where you are. You're now becoming part of the elections can be controlled by conspiracies, which I also have to hasten to add, was an idea originated not by Trumpians in 2020, but by psychotic Democrats in 2004, who constantly said that the Kochs were controlling the Diebold voting machines. And there is a movie called The Campaign with Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis about a senatorial race in North Carolina in which the Koch brothers change the results on the voting machine at the climax. You can see the numbers being mysteriously changed. That is a movie made by Adam McKay, who made Vice and made Don't Look Up and made this and made that. That is a leftist delusion that then shifted over onto the right and now is reshifting back to the left. Well, and there, it's also it's also a huge missed opportunity and the cynicism that I think Democrats will be held res rightly responsible for generating about the whole is democracy in crisis argument. Um, they should be punished for that eventually because it, maybe it'll be by historians in 50 years, but because there were pre-Trump, there were lots of things about how our democracy worked and particularly how our government functioned um, dysfunctionally that had people concerned. The reason Trump won is that he spoke to a need that Ameri some many Americans felt that things weren't working the way they were supposed to. You were if you if you did everything you were supposed to do, you still could not make it. You were barely squeaking by. There were all these 
larger forces that were at work. He tapped into that anxiety and fear about that. I don't think in a healthy way, but he, but it was a real and genuine experience that many Americans were having. There is a crisis in many of our institutions of democracy. People have lost trust and faith in, in their ability to function in a way that is neutral and, and that just plain works. Um, that's true at the local level for a lot of local government. It's certainly true at the federal level. So there was here an opportunity post-Trump to say, why have we lost faith in the government that we have, you know, that has thus far flourished and survived in this world and, and serves as a beacon to so many others? And to attack, and, and look, January 6th is part of that, but, but to understand it in the context of long before Trump, faith in these institutions was starting to decay. Why? What can we do to repair them? That's a conservative project. That's something that should go ahead regardless of what the Democrats focus on. But the cynicism that, I, that I've heard from people on the left and the right now when any democracy talk comes up, their eyes roll, and, and understandably so. And that's a missed opportunity. Look, I mean, the, 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 the people... The people who are, you know, now talking about saving our democracy, pre-January sixth, they had a big argument that uh, patriotism is evil, and it's and it's it's uh, it's employed for evil ends, and um, yeah, I mean that that was an ongoing uh, argument on on the left, you know, for a long time. Uh, there was love of country was very 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 suspect, you know. John, I, I take your point about the sort of the switching of the of the focus. Um, but I, I do think that because the, the January 6th uh, uh, committee was, you know, produced this ongoing primetime docu-series that was covered, you know, 24-7 by mainstream media constantly, and polls indicate that it's changed no one's mind, really, from the start, um, I think... Look, it may 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 not have had to happen anyway. I mean, it's, it's that that the point of the panel is not not for electoral politics, but but it certainly didn't it didn't do anything. I don't think to um, instill the idea in in people that that the threat of democracy, the threat to democracy, is is overwhelming and critical. Well, look, there's I mean, something no, of a no. rational response to that. There, I'm sorry to interrupt you, John, but Go ahead. I mean, young man's lyceum, you know the idea that good men would intervene to thwart the ambitions of uh, ambitious men. It happened. We watched it. Institution after institution, men of character, women of character across the political spectrum rose up to thwart a profound assault on American democracy. One that I am tragically sincere about. Yeah. Um, that's heartening. That's not the sort of thing you can hand wave away and just dismiss as a, as some, a, you know, a, a just fortune an event that nobody had control over. That was the product of a series of ideas and philosophies that were incepted in these people from birth that they adhere to, that they believe in, that many Americans believe in, and it worked. Okay, as but terrible as that problem. day was, it does have yeah. redeeming qualities to it. Yeah, but here's the problem with that argument. Not that I want to belabor this, but I mean, yeah, then Trump targeted all these people who, who held him accountable for his behavior on January 6th, and Liz Cheney will no longer be a member of Congress, and Adam Kinziger will no longer be a member of Congress, and uh, I, I, you know, the, wh however many House members it was who voted for impeachment, most of them are are either retired or are gone, and so you know, it's not as though there was not a cost to them for having done so after the fact that we didn't expect that anybody was actually going to have to pay, and that's something you need to reckon with but i but i think 
in the end, you know, there's all form kinds of forms of election denial. So there is the election denial that Trump says my votes were stolen from me. Then there's the election denial of 2000 and 2016 when, uh, you know, Bush got 500,000 fewer votes than Gore nationwide. And when Trump got 3, 3 million fewer votes than Hillary nationwide. And an enormous number of people in the Democratic Party believed that their presidencies were illegitimate as a result of that. We do not count the popular vote nationally. It has happened. That is, we, that's not how we run elections according to the Constitution of the United States. It never has been. And maybe you can write a new constitution, you can write a new, you know, amendment and have it passed and overturn the Electoral College. But that is not how we count votes. And nonetheless, because people were disappointed that their person didn't win and because they don't like the way it went, they acted as though the threat to democracy was Trump, not because he was stealing votes on January 6th, but because he was elected in 2016. What was the meaning of the Washington Post putting democracy dies in darkness as its slogan under, you know, as opposed to all the news that's fit to print? That was about Trump winning an election in 2016 that they believed by rights he should have lost because he lost the you know he lost the popular vote and so that's a form of election denial you know saying that the senate is illegitimately and unjustly constructed because big states have the same number of senators as little states and therefore the senate is a fundamentally undemocratic institution that's a form of election denial constitution was built that way it was built to make sure that every state had an equal say in the you know in the unelected until 90, 1913 the unelected body uh that was essentially you know the parallel to the house of lords like so states were represented at the state level individual districts were represented in the house and then the entire body politic was represented in the presidency and an attack on that system is a is election denial philosophical elections and the idea that the united states is structured in a fundamentally unjust way and i'm not going to get lectured about elections and the purity and nobility of democracy by people who have spent my entire lifetime trashing the electoral college saying it's not fair that the senate you know this is not a new argument like i heard this in college like i in the american you know in studying and studying american politics at the electoral college in fact states it was said in the 1970s during a very status moment, individual states, that was terrible. Like, why did we have these states? We should end them and have national, you know, and have national legislation that controlled everything because the states just gummed up the works. So you couldn't impose your will everywhere. Anyway, that's all election denial. And the Republican election denial is bad. And the Democratic election denial is bad. And yeah, very partisan people say they're screwing up our elections and you know the and uh, on either side. And yeah, so there you have. Whereas if you're CBS News and you're going to have an election, what was it? It's a democracy desk on election night. Nora O'Donnell and John Dickerson. They're going to sit and Gail King, because she's of course a famous political scientist, are going to sit there. And like decide and now tell us how many election deniers are getting elected. Oh, I don't think that's so the, that they the goal. Can... The the objective is to report on where and when poll watchers are being harassed. Oh, right? that's part of it, but also they're going to do a tally 
of election denier victories at the state and local level. As long because as they, they know how many of those credit, were funded yeah. by the DCs, by the Democratic Party, I'm happy to have them do that. As long as they note the amount of money that was given to those election denying candidates in the primaries, fine. Total transparency. Go for it. <laughs> anyway, when you announce you're going to do that kind of thing, or the Washington Post and the New York Times announced that they're going to have democracy watching teams now permanently employed, this is all an effort to discredit the coming election that's my view it's that not to not to deny it but to discredit it and to say this election republicans are probably i mean i think increasingly it seems very clear that the wave is coming and we now have the precrimination which is going to be not that this will be the crimination <laughs> and then the recrimination will be after will be yeah they won and it's bad and it's bad because the people who won are bad you can't say that someone's bad because they're a conservative. You can say it, but you know, like you have to say it in a complicated way to say they're bad because they're a Republican or they're a conservative. But now you can say they're bad because they're an election denier. And so we'll see how much talk there is about this uh, on, on election night. My guess is there's going to be a whole lot and that we're going to see, you know, the bigger the wave is, the more the talk about the triumph of the election deniers is going to be a dominant feature of the coverage in the days that follow. Um, okay, with that, I think we will close out our week here. I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend and sees the leaves turning and does hangs out with family and doesn't think about politics. And maybe the Yankees will get a run which would be nice and not strike out 15 times a game, which would also be nice. But, you know, could be a very grim weekend for us here here in New York. Anyway, for uh, Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.